When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We are not where we need to be if we're going to be able to, quote, live with the virus. COVID remains a problem, and we're fighting it. Do all you can to protect yourself against what might come. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. They've borrowed and spent trillions of dollars that we just don't have, and that's thrown fuel on the fire of the inflation problem. I'm for Ohio. I don't kiss anyone's ass like him. Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Is there another dark tunnel looming? Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with two big warnings for Washington today. The IMF says the economic outlook is worsening globally thanks to inflation, and the White House says another COVID surge could be on the way. Tonight, we explore both with analysis from Bloomberg Economics Editor Michael McKee and from Dr. Jay Varma, Chief Medical Advisor at the Kroll Institute. Later this hour, Republicans in the House plan to use next year's debt limit deadline to squeeze concessions from Democrats, including possible changes to Social Security. We'll talk about that with Bloomberg's Jack Fitzpatrick, who broke the story. And we'll try to make sense of it all with our signature panel. Back together today, Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano here for the hour. Today we peek over the edge of a couple of major political risks with four weeks to Election Day. The economy and COVID both being discussed with urgency today in Washington. We'll start with the warning from the International Monetary Fund. The IMF today cutting its outlook for global growth. It's been a big story throughout the day on Bloomberg, a market mover with risks of a miscalculation by the Fed or other central banks around the world. Again, this is a global view, ever-increasing. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about it today. If you listen to this program, you can probably imagine the answer. We believe that they have the strongest monetary policy uh, to deal with this moment, and we are going to allow them to do the work uh, that they are currently doing. I'm not going to uh, be responding to um, to any actions that they're taking because we truly do believe in the independence of the Fed. Well, Mike McKee will get into it with us. Bloomberg's economics editor joins us now. Mike, welcome back to Washington. 
Thanks to be here. So the IMF <laughs> spooked everyone today. It's kind of interesting to see the market reaction, but we woke up to real doom and gloom this morning as the IMF warns of a worsening outlook. They cut the forecast for global growth. And it's, boy, this is the conversation the White House does not want to hear, right? Well, they don't want to hear it, but they knew it was coming. Uh, the outlook is uh, doer, downbeat, uh, yeah. however you want to describe it. Basically, they see the economy in worse shape than they did in July. And that's a combination of the ongoing war and the impact on energy and inflation and the possibility that central banks could over-tighten mm -hmm. and send the global economy into recession. There seems to be the, the, the sort of growing narrative on Wall Street that you hear on Bloomberg TV and radio every day with uh, very few people expecting a soft landing. Are the odds of recession higher now than they were a couple of months ago? I think the odds of recession are higher now than they were a couple of months ago, but there are still some aspects to the U.S. economy that suggest that uh, it's a narrow window, but they might be able to pull it off. You look at the jobs report last week, right. and it was stronger than people anticipated in some of the underlying areas, particularly for uh, unemployment. And so if we're going to see inflation come down, uh, and unemployment not go skyrocketing, that's what the Fed wants to see. The mm -hmm. JOLTS data said uh, vacancies, job vacancies are falling. And so if people are f who, are, who become unemployed are taking jobs that are out there, then uh, they could do perhaps a soft landing. But we're still waiting for the other side of that equation, yes, inflation right. to come down. Well, that's the problem here, right? And so doesn't a report like Friday uh, give Jay Powell just even more encouragement to pull out the sledgehammer here front-loading in a way that maybe we don't know how long that's going to take to kick in. Could they have already overshot? Well, they could. They're betting that they haven't. We get the CPI report on, on Thursday morning, yeah. and it is expected to show that inflation is still rising, but at a slower pace. And if that's the case, then the Fed is going to feel they're getting closer to where they need to be, perhaps. Now, a lot of this depends on what happens with the OPEC announcement of higher oil prices. Is that going to push up uh, inflation again? Uh, but right now, what the Fed is thinking is they're almost – they either are or are almost restrictive enough on the economy, uh, not stimulating the economy anymore, but actually yeah. retarding its growth. And if that's the case, then they feel they will be able to stop. But they think they need another 100, 125 basis points before they get there. Once they get there – then their plan is to stop and just leave rates there for a long time. Huh. And that's where people get nervous. Uh, markets get nervous. They've already priced in at least one cut next year because they think the Fed can't sustain that. So mm -hmm. there'll be a test of wills coming up. You know, there's a conversation happening uh, at the White House fairly quietly, although we've heard Dr. Fauci uh, talk about it openly, and that is the possibility of another COVID surge this winter with potentially a new strain that could escape vaccines. Is that a game changer for the economy? From what I understand, no. Now, I'm not an epidemiologist or a doctor. Yeah. I don't even play one on TV. But I, <laughs> do, I do keep up with, with the latest news on it. And there are new strains. There are mm -hmm. new variants. And wintertime is when these coronaviruses come back around. Yes, so right. every uh, epidemiologist seems to be saying, yes, get prepared for another wave. But uh, because so many people are vaccinated and so many people have had it, we're getting past the serious illness death phase. Still a lot, sure. way too many people dying. But, but that not, doesn't worry about supply chain. For you're, us. you're not going to have to shut down economies mm -hmm. is, is the general feeling unless there's some sort of surprise variant out there. And so that is uh, less of a, an issue than it was. What's more of an issue is COVID 
running through China because unless and until they change their one uh, their zero tolerance policy for COVID, then you're going to see supply chains shut down wow. on a regular basis. One of these days we'll talk about something positive. But hey, we did touch the job market. So Michael McKee, thank you for the expertise. Great to see you in Washington. Happy to be here. Of course, there's no way to really predict what happens with COVID here or anywhere, but it is still here in the U.S. and winter is coming. Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking to the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism about what could be ahead. I think it would be a bit cavalier to all of a sudden say we're completely through with it, because remember, we were going in the right direction in the summer of 2021 and along came Delta. Then in the winter November, December of 2021, along came Omicron. And since then, we've had multiple sublineages of Omicron. Fast forward to today, we heard from Ashish Jha, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, with more specifics. So predictions are always hard on these things, right, because the virus continues to surprise us and, and continues to evolve. Um, there are three or four subvariants that we are tracking most closely. Um, they are, you know, in different parts of the world. Um, and they all arise either from a BA2 or a BA5 kind of uh, lineage. And the reason we're tracking them is because they either have a lot more immune evasiveness or they render many of our treatments ineffective. And so we turn to another voice of authority on this issue. Dr. Jay Varma is back with us, chief medical advisor and fellow at the Kroll Institute. As you might remember, he was former spokesperson and, and architect of New York City's COVID-19 pandemic response. Doctor, it's great to have you back. How worried should we be about winter? Uh, well, there are basically two things that we've come to expect, you know, since this pandemic began, which is that every winter there are more COVID cases due to the change in seasons. And the second that the virus finds a way every two or three months to produce a new variant that um, can increase the risk of infections. Mm -hmm. So I don't think Americans need to be sort of unduly alarmed compared to previous winters. Um, but it's just very important to emphasize that one of the other constants throughout this has been that getting up to date on your vaccines is the best way to protect yourself and your loved ones from getting seriously ill. That's why Ashish Jha was out there to begin with. He was speaking uh, along with uh, the press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, about the, the new combined vaccines that they're encouraging people to get. But he also talked about the unknown doctor. Listen to this. The curveball that we got last, uh, last Thanksgiving with Omicron, none of us obviously can uh, uh, predict that with any certainty. So our job is to not be in the prediction business, but to be in the planning business. And so we have a whole set of efforts that we're leading in the U.S. government to be ready should Mother Nature throw us a true curveball like what we saw last week? What should that response look like, doctor? Not knowing what's going to happen, but Omicron, you know, stopped us in our tracks again. And as we just heard from the White House uh, coordinator, it could happen again. Yeah. So there is a doomsday scenario that exists. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. But I personally don't see that, you know, based on the data that we see globally right now. The doomsday scenario would be a, a new strain of the virus that evades all of our pre-existing immunity. And by all of our immunity, it means that immunity that protects us from getting hospitalized and dying. That does not appear to be the case based on what we can see out on the horizon right now. It doesn't mean it couldn't emerge in the future. And unfortunately, if that happened, you're basically talking about a new pandemic and, and restarting those questions about, you know, closing down, you know, economic activity. I, I don't think that is a discussion or a scenario that is likely to happen anytime in the near future. I think mm -hmm. the most likely scenario is you know, hospitals getting overrun and, and what can you do to basically decompress hospitals, especially in those areas that have low uptake of vaccination. 
we obviously know how to work from home. Uh, and I, I had asked this of, of Michael McKee before. Not everybody can. And if we did have another Omicron, what would it mean for, for dock workers, for people who work in the shipping industry? Could there be worse supply chain issues than we've experienced or, or anything on the scale that we've seen? Well, you know, I can tell you from my experience here in New York, we had a perfect test of the question about, you know, is it the virus that shuts down the economy or is it aggressive public health policy actions? Mm. You know, and what we saw last December during Omicron is zero effort by city or state government to restrict business activity, uh, yet stores everywhere were closed because people were sick. And, And it really reinforces what those of us in public health say, which is the greatest drag on the economy is not the actions by the government to control the virus. It's the virus making people sick. And like you just said, not enough employees showing up at work to, you know, take those goods off the docks that are, are what we all survive on. And of course, funding becomes another issue here. Uh, doctor, we didn't get the, any of the money that the administration asked for from Congress. Are we going to be paying for tests and vaccines in the near future? Yeah, and that's really what a lot of that money was meant to do. What we need, you know, because we don't have a universal health care system in this country, mm-hmm. um, it's incumbent upon the government during emergencies to provide at least, you know, essential free medical care for the, the priority diseases. So that means well, the tests, the vaccines. When drugs. these numbers start to go up, people are going to start to care again. And you'll remember this conversation with Dr. Jay Varma. Thank you, Doc. The panel's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Winter is coming, and it could bring some very real challenges to the Biden administration, beginning with the economic trouble we just talked about with Michael McKee. Of course, it was, what, just yesterday that Jamie Dimon, J.P. Morgan Chase predicted a recession on CNBC. This, again, is fairly typical. You know, markets go down. For you know, people forecast the economy, et cetera. The IPO market closes first. That's kind of happened. High yield closes second, and structured credit. That's kind of happened for the most part. You know, things can get done, and then it starts to affect other credit. You saw it with the gilt markets here. You see a lack of liquidity in a lot of markets. A lot of uh, intermediaries can't intermediate like we used to because of regulations. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. He's seen it happen before. He'll see it again. Adding there as well that the S and P five hundred could drop another 20 percent that's not a good recipe when you consider the potential uptick in covid cases that we were also just discussing with dr j pharma let's assemble the panel rick davis and Jeannie shanzano back together for our signature panel bloomberg politics contributors rick how concerned are you when you hear this kind of a conversation happening on what is it the 11th of october knowing that winter could bring some tough news on both fronts For sure. It does seem in this case where uh, the economy and its decline is leading this time uh, the COVID surge potential. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think last time we saw COVID brought the economy to its knees. Maybe the economy can bring uh, COVID to its knees. So uh, I think Jamie Dimon is reflecting what is out there in the marketplace. And, And you couple his comments with a lot of what we're hearing out of the Fed right now about Real questions as to how to tackle inflation that seems resistant to the growth in the jobs market. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really start to wonder whether or not there's a plan out there to sort of try to manage through this process. Layering on a, a potential COVID surge, uh, you know, would just exacerbate those uh, market forces like uh, supply chain disruption uh, that uh, caused by healthcare uh, that could really uh, complicate the economy. Is the White House ready for this, Jeannie? 
You know, I'm not sure they've quite uh, wrapped their head around it, I have to say. You know, you add on to the IMF and Jamie Dimon, Bank of Mm -hmm. America, saying the economy is going to lose 175,000 jobs per month and unemployment rises to 5.5. You have a president talking at fundraiser about Armageddon and the potential for nuclear war. (laughs) And as a pollster, I look at the polls and people wonder, why are voters feeling so insecure well, they are feeling economically insecure. Because they're believing what they're hearing. They're believing what they're hearing. And quite frankly, in some ways, and I don't say this often, they are ahead of the experts. I mean, all the talk about we're not in a recession yet, voters have for a long time been telling pollsters, we don't care what the experts are saying. It feels like a recession right now. Don't tell me gas prices are lower because I'm feeling pretty insecure. So I think the insecurity is out there. And the reason I'm not sure the White House has grasped it is why would the president have been talking about nuclear war? You know, these are the signs that they haven't quite grasped. That's not the message they should be sending out four weeks to the midterm. Yeah. The message that the White House has been sending out through Ashish Jha and Dr. Fauci, though, is that, look, this uh, I know the president said the pandemic was over on 60 Minutes, but think otherwise. We are not where we need to be if we're going to be able to, quote, live with the virus. We've talked about this uh, up and down, Rick Davis, since the $22 billion requested by the White House was not put in uh, legislation to basically end the session here. It would have likely ended up in the Inflation Reduction Act, although there were many vehicles that came before it. Not going to happen. Will people complain uh, or, or blame the administration if we have a lack of supplies or if, God forbid, we have to start paying for this stuff ourselves? Sure. After the fact, uh, Mm -hmm. people will complain, no question about it. But if you look uh, so far, uh, people going for the Omicron booster, uh, which has been out there quite some time, uh, has been really lackluster. So uh, they almost have nobody to blame but themselves. You can get an Omicron booster today if you want it. And uh, I know this administration has said publicly many times they're very disappointed with how many people are going out there to do that. And that is how you avoid a winter surge, Yes, is by having these boosters in place so that there's a level of immunity that can take care of it. But Jeannie, if it's still a, it's, it's a boo line at Trump rallies, he won't even say the word vaccine. He says, I'm not going to say it. And they all start booing. They know even though, the, well, I mean, he, he helped to shepherd uh, the development of the vaccine and took it himself. Uh, this remains a political issue. It does. And I think that explains why the president goes out and says the pandemic is over. And yet we are looking at Europe. There's a surge in Europe and hospitalizations, cases, deaths. We've always seen that come before the United States. So we may see that reach our shores. We hope we don't. And Rick is right. People can get the next booster. But honestly, if you ask people about this next booster, most people haven't gotten it and haven't even heard about it. And that is at the that is at the hands of public health officials and the administration and Congress, dear point who didn't fund the billions of dollars needed to get the word out and get us ready to face another potential surge. Yeah. Rick, you're a crisis management expert. The White House have a special room with a bunch of spreadsheets laid out here, gaming out various options for both of these. How do you how do you prepare for something you can't predict? Well, I think a lot of what the White House tries to do is make sure that they're able to meet the crisis when it hits you, right? I mean, they've seemed like they were really 
more uh, adept at dealing with a crisis once it hits than averting the crisis to begin with. And in some cases, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, they are running advertisements on boosters, for instance. And, you know, if, if, if people don't go get them and you have a surge, they're going to they're gonna have to deal with that surge. But this is where they get marked down, is this administration has not responded in a way that shows competence. Rick and Jeannie are together and for the hour on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll have more of our panel ahead as we turn back to what's happening on Capitol Hill and what might happen with the debt ceiling next year. Jack Fitzpatrick with an exclusive next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. We spent the first half of this hour talking about the economic and COVID risks facing us this winter. Up next, we stare over another cliff, a fiscal cliff. It sure kind of sounds like it. Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick will be up next with an exclusive here talking with key House Republicans who want to use next year's debt limit deadline to pull concessions from Democrats. And they are looking specifically at the major entitlements. Of course, so many people wondering what will happen with the midterms and will the House actually turn to Republican control. And assuming that happens, some interesting things are going to be on the way. As Jack Fitzpatrick reports from Bloomberg Government, Social Security and Medicare eligibility changes, spending caps, safety net, work requirements, all among the priorities for a couple of important Republicans in the House who are interested in serving as the next budget committee chair. And this could be tied with the debt limit. That brings us to the whole idea of the fiscal cliff. He's with us now in studio. Great to see you, Jack. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was Chuck Schumer on the 28th of September. Government funding is set to run out Friday at midnight, roughly 40 hours from now. And there's no reason at all for us to get anywhere near that deadline. And we really didn't. I mean, I guess we walked up to it, but nobody was ever predicting a government shutdown that wasn't part of the strategy this time. After I read your piece, and I will encourage everyone to find it on the terminal, it's important. We could be having a very different conversation next year. Yeah, uh, this would actually be much more explosive than the shutdown deadline to the, you know, a shutdown is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. A debt limit standoff uh, is the kind of thing that Janet Yellen has described as catastrophic. If the government cannot make payments that it agreed to make and the debt limit cuts those off and they don't have a deal, uh, that could cast doubt, that would cast doubt on the federal government's ability to make its agreed upon payments. It would be a huge deal. It's much more of an explosive kind of deadline that Mm -hmm. is coming around the third quarter of next year uh, than a government funding one because the the repercussions of a failure would be much worse than a government shutdown. It would uh, default. Though it, it could be yeah. combined with one, right? Uh, if potentially. they don't figure this out? It, sometimes they do uh, they combine them. Uh, but the, the real issue here is that Republicans are kind of gearing up and saying, all right, that's the, the biggest point of leverage that we will have, especially if we win the House and or Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would need to be a deal of 
of some sort to suspend or raise the debt limit to avoid that catastrophe. Uh, and they are in conversations among themselves now to say, what would our opening offer be? What would we consider a sort of victorious compromise? Uh, and I, I was a bit surprised to how directly a number, I, I talked to all the members who are interested in being the next budget chair on the yep. Republican side, uh, who said Social Security and Medicare need to be a focus. It may be the case that lower hanging fruit would be some sort of quote unquote welfare reform, work requirements, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're they're pretty direct about saying, you know, raising the age of eligibility for Social Security and Medicare. One member said more means testing, limiting who it applies to, focusing it more on poor and working class people. Uh, but, you know, targeting wow. some sort of negotiations on those two major entitlements is, is something that they're talking about. It's something that Joe Biden's been talking about because Rick Scott had had this had this idea in, in the other chamber, right? It was part of his competing plan with Mitch McConnell to have sunset provisions for some of these major entitlements. Uh, this is essentially what the White House has been warning of. Yes, the White House Democrats, uh, they are sort of on offense on these issues. There was a bit of a lull during the Trump years when Republicans kind of stopped talking about trying to reduce spending on Social Security and Medicare in mm -hmm. some way, sort of the end of the Paul Ryan era into the Trump era. Mm -hmm. It wasn't clear how much this was going to be a major divisive issue on the campaign trail. Yeah. Uh, the Republicans seem to get to be getting a bit more at it. Uh, and you hear the president talking about it. You hear Democratic candidates going on air with attack ads on Republicans citing Rick Scott. Uh, plan, the Republican Study Committee budget, which is the largest caucus of House Republicans, somewhat leadership aligned, has, has you know, proposals for increasing the rates of eligibility, things that have been dis characterized as privatization. So this is a big issue that, you know, if you remember the, the old ad uh, Democrats ran, it was showing uh, Paul Ryan pushing a grandma off a rooftop, I believe was the thing. <laughs> the, we're kind of getting back to that on the campaign wow. trail here. All right. Well, I, but your energy is palpable here, uh, and, and, and this is why people are going to run to read the story. But before they do, bring us into your reporting a little bit here, because I don't see anybody else uh, with this. And the, and the, the sort of power struggle uh, that's happening ahead of a potential change uh, in power, in, in control of the House, has got to be leading – a lot of these lawmakers to be talking to you. Is this messaging or is this real agenda? Um, you know, you can get ambitious if you're one of these safe seat conservatives. It's, it's notable that these are not swing district members who are feeling under attack themselves. Yeah. The people, Jason Smith, Jody Arrington, Buddy Carter, Lloyd Smucker, uh, Kevin Hearn is the budget guy for the RSC who I mentioned. These are people who are gearing up saying, hey, we as a House Republican conference need to decide what's our opening offer on the debt limit. Mm -hmm. What would we consider a victory? They are not in, say, Ron Johnson's position uh, in Wisconsin in that tough Senate race. So there is a bit of a difference between a swing district member who doesn't really want to get aggressive talking about this kind of thing and somebody gunning for a leadership position who has a, a safer reelection bid. These are not really household names when it comes to uh, lawmakers. Is, is, is there any ranking uh, in terms of who's leading the race here, it, the potential next year? So Jason Smith is uh, he has. A, a, it seems a pretty good chance of actually becoming Ways and Means chair if he gets that, and that's an even more influential position. It opens it up for right. the others to go for budget chair. It seems quite clear that if he does not get it, he would remain as budget chair. Uh, it's you know it's a, an influential enough position so that they would help leadership go to their members and say, what are our demands? How can we get the votes to avoid a catastrophe? What do we attach to that debt limit measure uh, to get something right. fiscally? 
conservative out of it. What could Democrats get out of this? Or are they going to be on the ropes if they lose the House? They don't have that uh, that leverage anymore. They would be on the ropes. And it, it has been a bit surprising that Democrats have not been gearing up to try to get this done ahead of time in the lame duck. Yeah. I think they're distracted. They've got to fund the government. They're, they're trying to do the same-sex marriage bill in the lame duck. They have other things to do. Mm-hmm. And Congress doesn't get things done months and months and months before the deadline. <laughs> right. The latest estimate is the deadline's the third quarter of next year. So that kind of puts the the power in the Republicans' hands because they think they're going to win at least one chamber. If they do win the House, just lastly, does December 16th become more significant or are we going to have a a funding mechanism that goes beyond the middle of December? There's a a portion, the conservative portion, the Freedom Caucus guys are saying we should not take a deal in the lame duck. We should kick this into next year. There's a a division among Republicans. I don't think it's a a catastrophe. There there could be a deal, but there is a push to to delay that by conservatives. Great reporting from Jack Fitzpatrick, who, of course, we love to hear from on Bloomberg Sound On as he often holds this microphone. Thanks for being with us, Jack. Great job. Bloomberg Government Congress reporter will reassemble the panel next for their take. Rick and Jeannie are on the way. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The fastest hour in politics. Thanks for being with us on the radio, on the satellite, on the podcast. Enough scary news today to get us through Halloween. It's only the 11th of October, and I haven't even talked about the debate last night. It wasn't scary, actually. It was, I thought, fascinating. J.D. Vance and Congressman Tim Ryan in Battleground, Ohio, showed up for the game. Both of them, at least in my humble opinion, and we'll hear momentarily from the panel on this, well-rehearsed and ready to rumble, as you might expect, uh, the big issues were at hand, and I really saw it as a microcosm for the national debate that we talk about every day here. Quickly, opening remarks here, just a snippet to give you a sense of how this began, and we'll bring in Rick and Jeannie. Here's J.D. Vance off the top. You know what issue he's pointing at, inflation. Simultaneously, they've borrowed and spent trillions of dollars that we just don't have, and that's thrown fuel on the flyer, fire of the inflation problem. And at the same time, they've completely gone to war against America's energy sector. And you can't do both of those things at the same time. They're each bad ideas. But when you do both of them at the same time, you're going to get record inflation, which is exactly what you expect to get. Now, Tim Ryan, of course, has supported all of these policies 100% of the time. Response from Tim Ryan, those policies, all those bills that Democrats voted for? A bipartisan infrastructure bill that's going to create 600,000 jobs here in Ohio. J.D. Vance is against that. Rob Portman, the senator who currently holds the seat, a Republican, helped put that deal together. Look at the CHIPS Act, lands the Intel project that's going to create a $100 billion investment into Ohio that's going to ripple throughout this entire economy. Supply chains, average wage, $135,000 a year. Just from last night, we have a lot more where that came from. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, our Bloomberg Politics contributors, of course, our signature panel. Uh, Jeannie, this was quite a go-round here. I don't know if you agree with me, but these seem to be fairly two fairly well-matched and very well-prepared uh, candidates. And it was a largely substantive conversation, despite some of the arguments that we've seen over the last year. It was a feisty debate, and it was well worth watching, and they hit on so many topics. I mean, I have to say everything from, as you mentioned, inflation and China Mm -hmm. to policing and same-sex marriage and, you know, the border, certainly crime. I mean, it was, you know, it was substantive. I agree with you. And, you know, I think our assessment all along has been that this is a really, really tough state for Tim Ryan 
But if any Democrat can, you know, <laughs> take on the Herculean task of, of flipping Ohio, mm. it would be Tim Ryan. He is quite a formidable candidate for Democrats. He does take on his own party and his own leadership, but it is still really an uphill battle for him. Yeah. And he's facing a candidate that I have to say I was surprised by how strong Vance came out last night. The Real Clear poll of polls, the RCP average has J.D. Vance up by 1.4 percentage points. Did he surprise you as well, Rick? You know, I wasn't really surprised by him. I mean, he was a tenacious candidate in the primaries. He he knows his stuff. He's yeah. a well-educated guy. I mean, I, I wasn't surprised by his debate performance. Um, uh, if anything, I, I always thought this as being sort of a uh, real uh, professional uh, Tim Ryan, a, a veteran of Congress, and... J.D. Vance, you know, uh, somebody who uh, has used the written word, uh, no no doubt that he can do well with the spoken word yes. uh, to advance his career. And so I've been watching this race very closely because I don't think there's a more important state out there uh, than Ohio. And I don't think mm -hmm. there's a, a more important race in this one because this one is truly a dead heat. And, and different from others where the differences between the candidates are pretty substantial – uh, these two guys are party line guys, and J.D. Vance is carrying the Republican line, and Tim Ryan's carrying the Democratic line, and and the reality is they didn't stray far from that in this debate. There were a couple of, um, I would say, gratuitous moments last night, <laughs> yes. um, and uh, one on each of their sides, and, but that didn't detract from a generally, uh, uh, I think, a very helpful debate for for voters of Ohio. So you would disagree with Congressman Ryan that he is closer to Rob Portman. I think he was making that suggestion there in that line uh, than J.D. Vance. Yeah, no, look, I mean, there's only one Rob Portman. Uh, uh, look, I mean, it's pretty clear to me in all the debates that I've watched this year is Democrats are running away from uh, Joe Biden and the, and the Democratic orthodoxy, right? It's just mm -hmm. not selling out there. They are critical of this administration on inflation. Uh, and the only place that they really sound like orthodox Democrats is when they start talking about abortion, which is the one issue uh, that they seem to have some advantage on going into Election Day. So um, uh, I think it's it's much harder for a, a member of a party to distance themselves from that party. Uh, uh, and and co-opting uh, Rob Portman, I'm sure he's very impressed with his uh, standing in the state coming to an end here. But uh, the mm -hmm. reality is uh, most voters vote along party line anyway right now. And so the idea that he's going to get Republicans to vote for him just because he thinks Rob Portman's a good guy – uh, I would say is shooting in the wrong direction. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jeannie, each candidate questioned the other guy's fitness for office. You know, you shouldn't even be here kind of thing. And uh, they did let their differences air out. Tim Ryan really uh, took control, grabbed the wheel with both hands. When he went after uh, Tim uh, uh, J.D. Vance and his relationship with Donald Trump, I'm going to walk you through the way this works. Here again is Congressman Tim Ryan. And I think the problem is, when you have guys like J.D. Vance who can't stand up to anybody, like just a few weeks ago in, in Youngstown, on the stage, uh, Donald Trump said to J.D. Vance, all you do is kiss my ass to get my support. He said that. That's bad because that means J.D. Vance is going to do whatever he wants. Mitch McConnell's given him $40 million, He's going to do what he wants. And Peter Thiel gave him a $15 million, He's going to do what he wants. And here's the thing that's most troubling about this. Lack of courage is that after Trump took J.D. Vance's dignity from him on the stage in Youngstown, J.D. Vance got back up on stage and said, start shaking his hand, take a picture, saying, hey, aren't we having a great time here tonight? So, look, 
Whether this is important to you or not, actually, Tim Ryan was pretty accurate there. Here, let's go to the 17th of September. This is Youngstown, Donald Trump. The New York Times did a fake story today, big front page, that J.D. wasn't sure if he wanted my support. J.D. is kissing my ass. He wants my support. I'm 18 points up. If I was 18 points down, he wouldn't want my support. And then, yes, J.D. Vance was introduced to come up, brought him up on the stage at the podium. Are we having a good time? Is it great to have the president back in Ohio? Okay. So Tim Ryan, essentially what he said, again, you may not care about that exchange, but it's one that we spent a lot of time on last night. J.D. Vance came back following the attack from Ryan. I'm not going to take lectures on dignity and self-respect from a guy caught on video kissing up to Chuck Schumer and begging him for a promotion to his next job. That's the kind of guy that Tim Ryan is. Now, he just said, it's so funny, we're getting close to Halloween, and Tim Ryan is put on a costume where he pretends to be a reasonable moderate. You know what I'm going to ask both of you here, Jeannie Shantano, was this a draw? No, I, I don't think it was a draw. There was a lot of kissing, but it wasn't the kind that it shows any kind of love on either side. Right. But, you know, I, I don't think I, I don't think it necessarily was a draw. And I'll tell you why. I thought that J.D. I thought that Tim Ryan, rather, he was able to differentiate himself in an important way. I mean, this whole exchange about that you just played, so I won't repeat the bad words. Um, you know, that came because Vance kept accusing him of being in Congress for 20 years. And this is why I was surprised by how good Vance's performance was, because he's not a politician. He hasn't been in office like Ryan. But Ryan was able to come back and he was able to say, and this is where I disagree with with Rick, that I have not held the Democratic Party line. I've run against Nancy Pelosi. I put ads out early on China. I've been with Trump on NAFTA and defense. Hmm. And I oppose Joe Biden on many things. So he was able to say that he is not a typical Democrat. And I thought he did that very effectively. And for that reason, I did not think it was a draw. I think Tim Ryan made himself heard in terms of who he is as an independent moderate voice whether that wins over republicans is another question and for that reason i thought he did better but i thought vance did a good job for somebody who's not accustomed to debating like this what's your thought on that rick and does this move the needle well uh look i mean i i think by most polls that you just uh discussed um uh vance has a slight lead uh, and it's a good year for republicans and so it's really incumbent upon tim ryan to change the dynamic and 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 pleading uh with republican and swing voters that he's not their kind of democrat after serving 20 years congress and pulling the party line is going to be really hard for him so when you look at what vance has got to do to get his vote out and find that extra four or five points to be elected versus what ryan has to do which is turn himself into a pretzel in order to convince people that he's not a real (laughs) democrat and overcome a deficit of probably two or three points man i'd rather have that republican line every day if that's the setup fascinating uh, we've got some important debates coming uh, this week, the culminating with Friday, Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock. Are any of these debates, Jeannie, going to change the landscape? Because there's been a lot of single debate races. That's one of them. I'm assuming it's a one and done for, for Walker and Warnock. Are we going to get to a point where these are a thing of the past? Yeah, I mean, I've been frustrated, as you know, by the lack of debates. I wish there was yeah. more, but of course, for candidates and campaigns, they don't want them. The one I'm really going to watch is a Walker Warnock, because of course, in debates, you know, it, you can't do harm. That's the that's the rule. You shouldn't harm yourself. And I think there's a potential that Herschel Walker, again, new to this style of of, of politicking could do that. So I think that's going to be a very important debate to watch. Otherwise, I don't think it changes much. And if people vote party line, it's not going to change anything. 
Rick, you've prepared candidates for House, Senate, and presidential debates. Would you encourage your candidate now to, to take as many debates as possible, or that's an age gone by? I think if I were uh, advising Herschel Walker's campaign, and I would never try to do that, I would tell him run from any debate that he could possibly be offered. So it depends on the candidate, I think he means. Rick, great to have you back. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano can't get enough of these two. That's why they're our signature panel on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 